Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Ready? We're going to be moving fast this morning. Given the coming week, given Resurrection Sunday, next Sunday, given that after next Sunday we're going to begin our study in the book of Galatians, 
Knowing all of that, it seemed appropriate to lay down some basics again, some basic Christianity 101, how to understand your Bible type stuff. This morning, we are going to talk about the fact that our God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and we're going to review the biblical covenants. And that is going to culminate in the new covenant, which is established at the Lord's Supper, which is what we're going to observe next week. See how it all works together? I have a plan. So let's go. The Bible's divided into two large sections based on the pre Christ Jewish history and the post Christ church history. That's a division that we call the Old and the New Testament. But that's actually a literary division. The Bible is full of covenants. The words testament and covenant seem very similar, especially the way that they are used in our language today, but they're not identical. There are actually differences between the Hebrew word berit, which was an agreement between two parties that often included sacrificing animals and then walking through the separated parts of the animals, forming an agreement that essentially says, if you don't keep your part of this bargain, this is what's going to happen to you. So it's an agreement between usually two sides. Meanwhile, syntheke is the Greek word, or diatheke, which means your will or your testament, which is why we all write a last will and testament. Because properly, a testament from the Latin testamentum means the dispensing of your stuff, the dispensing of your will, the decisions that you have made at the point of your death. So there is a difference between the diatheke and the berit, but... When the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we know as the Septuagint, was written, they translated the word berit by the word diatheke. So those two words became sort of synonymous, and yet I want you to see the difference between the two. Our English word, as I said, comes from the Latin term testamentum, and then diatheke is a disposition of your property by the will of the property owner. And so a God-breathed testament is the distribution or dispensing of God's decided ordained events and their attendant blessings and cursings. So God dispenses his will on the human race, and we are powerless to resist or to deny any of the facts, the details, the rules, or the attributes of the dispensing of God's will. Also, when we're talking about covenants and testaments, you need to remember that there are conditional covenants and there are unconditional covenants. The covenants that God forms that he basically just announces are unconditional covenants. In other words, people don't have to do anything to validate them or to continue them or to guarantee them. But then the Bible also speaks of a conditional covenant which actually has a beginning and an ending which is conditioned on the behavior of human beings. 
Are you with me so far? Yes. I told you to be ready. You didn't just hang on to the top of your heads because we're going to be moving fast. Turn to the book of Genesis. You're going to turn to Genesis 8. There are a couple of ways to approach reading the Bible. There are hermeneutic systems like dispensationalism and covenantalism. Those are hermeneutical ways of approaching the Bible that have developed over the last 2,000 years of church history. Neither dispensationalism nor covenantalism can be found in the Bible. Those are theological constructs in order to interpret the Bible. The covenantal hermeneutic and approach to the Bible (coughs) emphasizes the covenants in the Bible and begins by positing that there was a covenant formed with Adam in the Garden of Eden. That doesn't exist in the Bible. You don't find the word covenant anywhere in the Garden of Eden. The first place that you find a covenant in the Bible is here in Genesis 8. Now, long as I mentioned both covenantalism and dispensationalism, even though the words dispensation and covenant are found in the Bible, we don't adhere to either of those systems which is why for years we used to call ourselves plank of wood because we just needed to find a a phrase that nobody else was using in order to say we're just biblicists. We just read what the Bible says. Sometimes when we're talking about the ongoing effects of God's unconditional covenants, we sound very covenantal. Sometimes when we're talking about the distinctions between the old and the new covenant, we sound very dispensational. But we're technically... Neither what we are are adherents of what the Bible actually says. So this first covenant that you find in the Bible in chapter 8 is known as the Noahic covenant because it is the covenant that God made with Noah after flooding the world and destroying all living creatures. We're going to start reading at verse 13. Now it came about... In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. 
And God blessed Noah, this is chapter 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast in the earth and every bird in the sky and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. And I will give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood in it. And surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man and from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And then God spoke to Noah and to his sons, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and the beasts on the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark and every beast on the earth. And I shall establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making with you. One of the important elements to know about covenants is that covenants in the Bible also have signs, indications. God attaches indications to his covenants. The covenant with Noah has a sign, has an indication. And now he's going to describe it. This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I shall set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth, and it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which shall be established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So, if you ever walk outside during a rainstorm, after a rainstorm, don't walk outside during the rainstorm. If you ever walk outside after a rainstorm and you see the rainbow in the sky, recognize that that is God continuing to keep the covenant that he has made between himself and all human beings. Has there been a worldwide massively destructive flood since Noah? No. God's keeping his word. God's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He's not going to destroy all flesh by a flood. Peter tells us, next time, fire, but not a flood. 
God is going to keep his word. Okay, so now that is the first covenant that we find in the Bible that is actually called a covenant that also has a sign attached to it. And so it has all the elements necessary of being a biblical covenant. Notice also that it is an unconditional covenant because God called it an everlasting covenant. And he said that he was going to form his covenant with all the living creatures that were on the ark and all their generations after them. And so that is a covenant that continues to this very day because human beings can't mess it up because it is a covenant based on the faithfulness of God himself who said, I am forming this covenant. He didn't put any conditions on it. He didn't say to Noah, I will keep this covenant provided you and your people do this stuff. In other words, he simply said, it's my covenant. I'm forming it. It's an everlasting covenant. That's the Noahic covenant. Got it? Got it. Good, because that's going to help you understand the rest of the covenants in the Bible. Go to Genesis 12 for just a moment, and we're going to see the second covenant that God forms in the Bible. This is what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. So there's the Abrahamic covenant because God forms a covenant with Abraham. I will tell you up front, this is also an unconditional covenant. God does not say, I will form this covenant with you provided you do this stuff. Instead, God simply declares that this is his covenant. And then after he puts Abraham to sleep, God himself passes through the animals in two figures necessary to form a covenant. But Abraham is not party to the covenant. God himself forms this covenant Here's what the covenant includes. Genesis 12, starting at verse 1. Now Yahweh, the Lord, said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay, so the first part of that covenant is start walking. When you get there, I'm going to tell you. And you're going to get all this land, you and your descendants forever. Take a look at chapter 15 for a moment. Starting right at the beginning of Genesis 15, we're going to read 21 verses here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since thou hast given me no offspring, one born in my house is going to be my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Now look toward the heavens, and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, 
how may I know that I shall possess this land? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to God and he cut them in two and he laid them each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, And you shall be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And on that day Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite, the Perizzite and the Raphaim, and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite, all of that land now belongs to Abram unconditionally. So did Abram pass through the animals? No. No. God himself formed this covenant by himself, declared it to be a covenant And then added a sign to it in keeping with the way God makes covenants. You're going to find that in Genesis 17, 11, which says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Okay, so continually, all the descendants of Abraham... All the Hebrews, all the Jews had to continue circumcising their children, which, by the way, is why in the New Testament you see Paul circumcising descendants of Abraham, like Timothy, and yet he does not circumcise Titus because Titus is a Gentile. So even after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, Paul continued to recognize the ongoing unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant and that the sign of the covenant, circumcision, was still valid. And so even into the New Testament, Paul himself, the great champion of our freedom from the law, he also continued the Abrahamic covenant because the Abrahamic covenant is never done away with. Galatians 3, starting at verse 15, Paul wrote this exact thing. Speaking of the Abrahamic covenant, and its ongoing nature. He said, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. He said, and to your seed. And that is Christ. So what I am saying is this. The law, which we'll talk about in a moment, 
which came 430 years later, exactly like God said, your descendants are going to go into a land that they're not known. They're going to serve there for 400 years. Then they're going to come out with great abundance. That law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise that was made to Abraham. For if the inheritance of that land, everything in the Abrahamic covenant, if the inheritance was based on the law, then it's no longer a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise, an unconditional, everlasting promise. Okay, that's the Abrahamic covenant. Are you with me so far? I'm just getting warmed up. I'm still introducing, technically. And, of course, we all know the rule. The next covenant that you find in the Old Testament is known as the Davidic covenant. That is the covenant that God made with King David. This is also an unconditional covenant. God does not say to David, provided you do these things, I will continue to keep this covenant. Instead, he says, this covenant is going to occur no matter what. Let me ask you a question. Did David sin against God? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did Christ come anyway? Yes. Okay, that's the proof positive of the unconditionality of the Davidic covenant. You'll find the original promise of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, but it's best summarized in 1 Chronicles 17. So that's where I'm going to read from. 1 Chronicles 17, starting at verse 11, I know you're having a hard time keeping up with me, but I'm never going to get all this in in one morning if I don't keep talking fast. So I don't have time to wait on you. Catch up, will you? 1 Chronicles 17, I'm going to start reading at verse 11. God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, that means when it comes time for you to die, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for me, a dynasty for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, that was King Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Other prophets picked up on that idea. As I mentioned, Samuel was the first one to elucidate the Davidic covenant. Even Isaiah picks it up in one of the most famous passages, Isaiah 9 and 6. Isaiah 9, 7 says, Of the increase of his government... And of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, so if it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts who is accomplishing this covenant, and if he has made this covenant and not put any conditions on it in the front, 
is this covenant still everlasting and good to this very day? The answer is yes. And that is why when we pray, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because that has not occurred yet, but it is going to and has to, because that is the further completion of both the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. Are you with me so far? Yes. Okay, good. Psalm 89, 3 and 4 says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, saying, I will establish your descendants forever to build your throne for all generations. Jeremiah 33, verses 19 to 21, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day, and my covenant for the night. By the way, can anybody break the covenant of day and night? No. I mean, give it a shot. Run out there and scream at the sun and see if it listens to you. Go out there when the night is falling and say, no, 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 I'm not done. I've still got stuff to do today. And see if the night cares at all what you think. Well, God says, since you can't break my covenant of day and night, and since day and night will always be at their appointed time. You cannot make them any other than occurring at their appointed time. If you could break those so that the day and the night will not be at their appointed time, which is an impossibility, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers." So God is putting his own reputation on the line, his own power and authority and sovereignty on the line, and says, these things are going to continue. These are built into how I created planet Earth. Day and night is going to happen, and the Davidic covenant leading to Christ, leading to the ultimate kingdom, is going to happen. And as long as you walk outside and it's day or night and you have no influence over it, you can still look forward to the fact that Christ is coming back to establish his kingdom. Got it? Got it. So then let's talk about the covenant that everybody seems to know. Let's talk about the Moses covenant, the law covenant, sometimes called the Sinai covenant. And it is very, very important that we get this one right. This is a conditional covenant. This is a covenant that has a starting place and an ending place. We're going to talk a lot about the Sinai covenant as we go through the book of Galatians because Paul has a lot to say about the Sinai covenant in the book of Galatians. And hopefully by the time we're done with this study in the book of Galatians, you too are going to see the distinctions and the differences between this very conditional law covenant and the covenant that comes after it, which is another unconditional covenant that is based in Christ himself. And if you don't see those distinctions, then you will start mixing and matching what Paul calls the old covenant with the new covenant. And there is so much religious confusion that occurs because of the intermingling and intermixing of the old and the new covenant that that is why there is so much confusion in Christianity these days. Christ is either completely and utterly Savior or he's just 
a synergistic participant in your desire to get yourself saved through keeping elements of the law. One of those two statements is true. I'll give you a clue. It was A. It was the first one. He is a complete, full, fully sufficient Savior. He does not need your good works added in order for him to save you. So let's talk about this law covenant. First, this is the one that shakes people up. The Ten Commandments. I was going to save this story until we start the book of Galatians, but I'm going to tell you now why we're going to the book of Galatians and why we're going to take the time to understand the differences between the Old and the New Covenant. It's because I was at my chiropractor just a couple of weeks ago, and he said to me, because he knows I'm a pastor, and he said to me, I've been reading the book of Leviticus. And I said, oh, okay, good for you, good. And he said, I have a question. Are we supposed to be keeping all these rules? (laughs) Why would he ask that question? Because he doesn't know the difference between the law, the old covenant, and sufficiency of Christ in the new covenant. And that is why for the next couple of months we are going to pound away at the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant because this is a church-going, Bible-reading, believing, chiropractic kind of guy. (laughs) And he's confused because he doesn't get the difference. So I'm going to make sure that everybody within the sound of my voice hears the difference. Ten Commandments, are you supposed to keep them? Yes. Is your salvation based on them? Are you supposed to keep all 10 of them? Yes. Paige has it right. She's going, no. And she's right. Let's start here. The Ten Commandments are actually the formation document of this very, very conditional covenant. Here, I'll prove it to you. Exodus 34, 28. Notice the very particular language that Moses uses when he's coming down from Mount Sinai. Exodus 34, 28. So he was there. Moses was there with Yahweh for 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread and did not drink water. And he wrote, God wrote, on the tablets of stone, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Is that what it says? That is exactly what it says because the Ten Commandments are the formation document informing this covenant, this very conditional covenant. So the words that are written, the Ten Commandments that are written on stone are referred to as the words of the covenant. In Deuteronomy 9.15, it says, So I turned and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hand. Okay, so think about this. The words of the Ten Commandments are called the words of the covenant. They are written on pieces of stone that are referred to as the tablets of the covenant. Are you getting a feel for this? Because the words and the rocks they were written on 
are forming a covenant. Deuteronomy 10.8, and at that time Yahweh singled out the tribe of Levi to carry a particular piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. covenant. You would think this would be a clue that the words of the covenant are written on the stones of the covenant that are put inside the box of the covenant. So that implies that God's forming a covenant here, right? And he is doing it utilizing the Ten Commandments. In the book of Hebrews, starting at Hebrews 9, the writer of Hebrews takes the time to tell us about this Ark of the Covenant and refers to it as the Ark of the Covenant. Here's what he writes, the first five verses of Hebrews 9. Now, the first covenant, by the way, his reference to the first covenant is what Paul calls the Old Covenant, which is the Sinai Covenant, which is the Law Covenant, which is a very conditional covenant. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was prepared. In its first room, the first room of the tabernacle, was the lampstand and the table and the consecrated bread. And this was called the holy place. Then behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. That's a good English translation of it. The Hebrew is the Kodesh Kodeshim. In other words, the Holy of Holies. So the most holy place is behind the second curtain. That's the place where only the high priest could go only once a year on the Day of Atonement. That most holy place contains a golden altar of incense and a gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark were the gold jars of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Because the writer of Hebrews, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, stop me when this is too obvious, the writer of Hebrews calls the Ark of the Covenant the box that contains the words and tablets of the covenant because he recognized that it was forming a covenant which he called the first covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory that were overshadowing the mercy seat. Now this covenant also includes a sign. And this is where Paige gets to jump up and say, See? It includes a sign. Do you know what the sign of that covenant was? Sabbath keeping. Exodus 31, 13. But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout all your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Or Exodus 31, 17. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from labor, and he was refreshed. So the sign of the Mosaic covenant is Sabbath keeping. So let's get this straight, because I'm talking about real, genuine freedom. When Jesus was on the planet, he walked around saying things like, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. 
What freedom was he talking about? Because they argued with him and said, oh, we've never been in bondage to anybody. We're the children of Abraham. The freedom he was talking about was freedom from the bondage of the law. And get this right, the law never saved anyone. As we continue talking about law and contrasting it with grace, Paul is going to say repeatedly, the law never accomplished salvation for anybody. The most the law can do for you is to condemn you. The most the law can do for you is to show you how wrong you are. Which is why Paul said it is a pedagogos. It is the servant that would lead the children to school. And so some translations say that the law is a schoolmaster until Christ comes. So the whole point of the law was to direct people to Christ. The law never saved anybody. It only condemned people. It demonstrated how wrong you were, how sinful you were, how rebellious you were, so that you would cry out for a Savior, so that you would know the full sufficiency of Christ. Because what the law could never do, Christ did by one sacrifice. And then sat down at the right hand of God because he had accomplished what the law could never accomplish. Hebrews 10.14 says that he perfected forever those that he sanctified. Perfected forever. I love that one. Perfected forever. The law never perfected anybody. You get it? Yes. So then finally, turn to Jeremiah 31. And I'm going to start reading at verse 27. Because right here in the midst of the law covenant, that very conditional covenant, right in the midst of that covenant that never saved anybody, in the midst of that dispensing of God's will, proving that all men were sinful so that every mouth would be shut so that everybody would recognize, both Jew and Gentile, would recognize their sinfulness before God. That was the purpose and the reason for the law coming at all. Right there in the midst of the law, Jeremiah announces this astounding thing that also has resonances of the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional covenant. Here's what it says. Starting at verse 27, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of men and with the seed of beast. And it will come about that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to overthrow and to destroy and to bring disaster, so also I will watch over them to build them up and to plant them declares the Lord. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. When we were at the end of the book of Revelation and we were talking about new Jerusalem, I emphasized that that word new meant qualitatively new. It was not a rubber stamp of something previous. It was not a reformation of something God had tried to do and failed. It was a brand new 
qualitatively new Jerusalem. Same thing here. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, a brand new qualitatively new covenant to replace that old covenant, which Paul refers to as the covenant of death. And this new covenant is the covenant of life. And notice that every one of these covenants that we have read about in the Bible so far belongs to Israel. Every single one of them. You can't find a single covenant in the Bible that belongs exclusively to Gentiles. Thank God he allowed Gentiles into the new covenant. Oh, yay. But notice who the covenant was made with. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And by the way, in Hebrews 8, you find the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament transferred into the New Testament. And guess what it is? It's these very words of the new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews continues to say that it is a covenant made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That does not change. It's an unconditional covenant. That does not change. Here are the terms of that covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, which covenant was made with Israel when they were brought out of Egypt? The law. The law at Sinai. So here is Jeremiah in, again, the thick of the, of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is still standing, is still imposed on the hearts of Israel when Jeremiah comes along and says this and prophesies, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with them at Mount Sinai, because the Mount Sinai covenant could do nothing but condemn them. Paul says the letter of the law kills And so God, in his astounding grace, remarkable mercy, decided to make a new covenant. And it will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Yes, it was a conditional covenant. And they broke that covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. That's the first part of it. In other words, it will no longer be external to them. Think about the law that came down the words of the covenant on the tables of the covenant that were put in the Ark of the Covenant and that were put in the Holy of Holies. It was separate from everybody. It was distinct from everybody. It stood there and condemned everybody. God says, this time around, I'm going to change people from the inside. Instead of there being external rules that they have to live up to, I'm going to put my law within them. Take out their stony heart. Give them a heart of flesh. And on top of that, put my Holy Spirit inside them, awakening them, reviving them, making them born again. This is my covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, 
and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Did God say there, I hope they'll be my people? And I hope they'll accept me as their God? No, when God says, I will, you can take that to the bank. God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Look at verse 34, and they shall not teach again every man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. He says, if this fixed order, sun and moon, a little while ago it was daytime, nighttime, same idea. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So, God's intention for Israel is that he is going to do all of the appropriate punishing that is summed up in he's going to pluck them up, break them down, overthrow them, destroy them, and bring disaster. But then he also said, I'm going to watch over them to build them and to plant them. So when God is done with what we know as the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, When he's done with that, he is going to plant them and he is going to establish them because that is all part of the new covenant, the new, better, higher covenant. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured. Anybody want to try that one? Okay, that's a no. If the foundations of the earth can be searched out below, anybody want to try that one? Okay, that's a no. Since nobody can do that, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all the sinfulness and trespassing and rebellion that they have done, declares the Lord who is their husband. He says, if heaven above can be figured out, if the earth below can be figured out, that's what it would take for me to ever give up on Israel. And then just to really plant that idea, verse 38, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel until the corner gate. And then he goes on and describes the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the establishment of it. So, is Israel sinful? Yes. Are they going to be cared for by God? Yes. Why? Because he just made an unconditional covenant with them then we Gentiles are introduced into this new covenant which I refer to as the covenant of salvation by grace through faith because as Paul continues to make the distinctions between the old and the new covenant he's going to say that the old covenant was all about works it's all about doing it's all about doing stuff the new covenant is all about living because it is done The new covenant is established in Christ Jesus and established in his blood. Here's the way the writer of Hebrews put it. In his commentary on the new covenant, he writes, Hebrews 8.13, 
When God said a new covenant, which we just read, which he just recited in Hebrews 8, and he sums up by saying, when God said a new covenant, he has made the first, okay, remember a moment ago, the writer of Hebrews referred to a first covenant. Now he says, he has made that first covenant obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is about to disappear. So, can you take an everlasting, unconditional covenant and mix it together with an obsolete, disappearing covenant? No, No, you cannot. And yet many, many churches try to do that. I was raised in the church of do stuff. The preacher used to thunder down on us week after week after week, telling us that it was up to us to just do better and be better and live up to a standard, and usually the standard came right from the old covenant. Have you ever been in a church that teaches tithing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, where's that come from? Old covenant, the obsolete disappearing covenant. There's nothing about it in the New Covenant. But see, that is a perfect example of the intermingling of the old and the new. Have you ever known anybody, Christian people, who say they keep the Sabbath? Yeah, of course. On the Internet, they couldn't hear your heads rattle as you were nodding at me. But but yes, of course, because people don't understand the distinction between Sabbath-keeping, which was a sign of the Old Covenant, not just part of it, but the very sign of it, and then the New Covenant, which is distinctively, qualitatively new. That's why Paul says things like, don't let anybody judge you in new moons or Sabbaths. Paul is a thoroughgoing Jew. How did he go from pharisaical Judaism all the way to, yeah, don't worry about the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath was required of Israel. And Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in the keeping of new moons or Sabbaths or high days, holy days, feasts. Don't let anybody judge you about that. Why? Because he understood the new covenant. And that's all I'm trying to do is get us to understand the new covenant over against the old covenant. And that's what the entirety of the book of Galatians is about. Hebrews 7, starting at verse 17. I'm really, really going to try to get done on time. I'm not going to make it. So just know that up front, okay? (laughs) Hebrews 7, starting at verse 17. It is attested of Christ. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We don't have time to get into that right now, except to say that that is a reference to Christ's ongoing priesthood. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is the nullification of a former commandment, that's the law, because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. So the writer of Hebrews is arguing that that first covenant, that former covenant, is pointless, is useless, is fading away, and the law ultimately made nothing complete or perfect. But on the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope through which we come near to God and to the extent 
that it was not without oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath. But he, Christ, is a priest with an oath through the one God who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever. And by that same extent, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, if the new covenant is the way that we Gentiles approach God through Jesus Christ, and that is a far better covenant based on better promises and a better blood, what would be the point of going back to the old covenant that never made anything perfect, that never accomplished anything, that Paul calls the ministry of death? Why would you go back there? Instead, we ought to be celebrating our freedom in Christ, our complete freedom in Christ, Hebrews 8, 6. But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry to the extent that he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So when does that covenant go into effect? When historically did that actually happen? Well, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 15. For this reason... He is the mediator of the new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a covenant, there must of necessity also be the death of the one who made it. Where there is a testament, a last will and testament. Okay, so Jennifer decides, because she likes Micah a lot, that she's going to leave him everything she's got. Right? Sorry about that, April. It's just, it's a deal they just made. I overheard it. I didn't mean to say anything. Okay. Can Micah show up there tomorrow and say, mine? No, he can't, because Jennifer's still alive. Her will is not in effect yet. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That even though you've created a last will and testament, it of necessity doesn't go into activity, doesn't go into being, find a word. There must of necessity be the death of the one who is the testator, the one who made that testament. For a covenant is valid only when people are dead, he writes, for it is never in force while the one who made it is living. So 2 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. And we are sealed, and he gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the pledge. That's the sign of the new covenant. All those who are in the new covenant receive the Spirit of God, which is the pledge, the down payment of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have toward God through Christ. Not that we are adequate within ourselves so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not by the letter of the law, but by the Holy Spirit. For the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. You see the contrast? Paul is very clear between the old and the new covenant. And the law kills and the covenant 
of salvation by grace through faith brings everlasting life. Two more passages. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 11. I always go here. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the plan of his own will. To the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, who is the promise, who is the first installment, the down payment of our eternal inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his own glory. The Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit as Christ promised it, that Holy Spirit indwelling his people is the sign of the new covenant. If you have the Holy Spirit today, which regenerated you, which woke you up, which gave you the ability to understand God's word and to have faith in Christ. If you have that, then you have the down payment, which is the surety and the proof that everything else God has promised you via the new covenant is going to come true because he has already given you that promise, that seal, that surety of the Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus sits with his disciples at the Last Supper We're going to talk about that next week. And he says this to them. Luke 22, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and his apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. What was he saying? He's saying, I'm establishing the new covenant by my death. Next week, we are going to memorialize that very moment, that very thing, the death of Christ, which brought about the new covenant, which brought about more than just our freedom from the law, but it brought about our sure and certain eternity and destiny to God's great glory through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the better covenant formed on better promises based on a better blood. There is no reason to go back to the covenant of sin and death that can only condemn you. The more you understand about the covenants in the Bible, the more you see that Christ himself is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant because it's an unconditional covenant. The more you'll see that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant because it's an unconditional covenant. And the more you'll see that he 
is the foundation and the satisfaction and the fulfillment of the new covenant because it's an unconditional covenant. Here at Grace Christian Assembly, we talk about grace a lot. Grace, grace, grace. Understand that it is all grace, nothing but grace, completely God's grace that would bring somebody like you into a covenant with a holy, righteous, eternal God. He did it all by his grace through the finished work of Christ, and he did it in the new covenant And we're going to be talking new covenant for the next couple of months. Trust me, you'll want to be here. Jeff. was a uh, wonderful primer for the book of Galatians and looking forward to jumping into that study and uh, that kind of setting the stage for that 
Wonderful book. I did want to mention, just as we jump into prayer requests, Romans chapter 1 tells us uh, a series of different things that happen. There's a chain reaction that happens when you don't recognize God, and you don't worship the Creator for who He is, and that succession, uh, that chain reaction that happens, one of the things that Paul lists there is that you become futile in your way of thinking, and because you become futile in your way of thinking, uh, your foolish heart becomes darkened, and the outgrowth of that darkness, as is listed in, in verse 29, is the following, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty and boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. That's exactly what we saw on Monday with the shooting that took place here in Nashville. The community around us, those professing Christ, living in a way that gives him the glory, suffered because of that darkness and the futile minds of those who reject Christ. And I submit to you that those who have their hearts darkened hate God, and they are going to continue more and more to hate his message, hate his truth, and as a consequence, hate us. So we ought to expect this type of outlash and hatred. We ought to expect that there probably will be more of it. So all of that to say that our prayers ought to be with the families that were touched in such a dramatic way and lost young lives, nine-year-old children, um, parents, just such a tragic way to uh, lose the life of, of a young child like that and are contending with uh, such difficulty and darkness. But we do pray for them, and we ask that you would remember them in your prayers and all of those that have suffered because of that. We do need to pray um, for the people that are under this darkness and this foolishness that has polluted their minds um, because it is pure insanity, and um, we do need to pray uh, for those that the Lord will indeed rescue some from that, uh, because it is destructive to their own end, as Romans 1 teaches us. So let's remember those people in our prayers and the people that are suffering because of it. Thank you. For listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.